This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. Rose Fox is away this week. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, father-daughter team Dr. Vincent DeVita and Elizabeth DeVita Rayburn discuss their book, The Death of Cancer. After 50 years on the front lines of medicine, a pioneering oncologist reveals why the war on cancer is winnable and how we can get there. Then PW publisher Kevin Breyerman will tell us about book publishing in Cuba. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. Taking a look at the fiction list first, we've got Patricia Cornwell's Depraved Heart at number three. This is a best-selling author's stirring 23rd novel, starring Dr. K. Scarpetta, as we say in our review. And we say Cornwell shows surprising restraint in reigning in her plot and keeping it tightly focused on her well-developed core characters. Uh, number five, we have Elizabeth George and her novel, A Banquet of Consequence. Is a Lindley novel. Uh, this is a threatened transfer to the north of England, subdues Detective Sergeant Barbara Havers of London's Metropolitan Police in bestseller George's uneven 19th Lindley novel. Uh, number 10, we have Alexander McCall Smith, The Woman Who Walked in Sunshine. And here we have Precious Ramstow Goes on Vacation in Smith's Enchanting 16th number one ladies detective novel. This is after uh, 2014's The Handsome Man's Deluxe Cafe. At number 17, we have Lisa Scottolini Corrupted, a Rosato and Denuzio novel. In our review, we say Edgar Winner Scottolini's lackluster 14th Rosato and Denuzio novel focuses on law firm founder Benny Rosato. We say the surprise courtroom twist lacks punch and a predictable ending may satisfy series fans, but it is unlikely to win new readers. At number 19, we have Gregory Maguire, a star review for After Alice. She's the author of Wiccan. We say Maguire turns his attention to Lewis Carroll's Victorian fantasies, Alice's adventures in Wonderland, and Through the Looking Glass in this thoughtful and disconcerting, memorable novel. And finally, at number 33, we have Tess Gerritsen, Playing with Fire. Uh, This book is on a trip to Rome. Violinist Julia Ansel, the narrator of the haunting standalone from bestseller Gerritsen, uh, she's the author of The The Bone Garden, buys an old music book titled Gypsy from an antique shop. And we say here, Gerritsen movingly depicts Julia's search, which has some surprising repercussions and builds to a satisfying crescendo. And that's what we have on fiction. And just taking a look at nonfiction, we have uh, Michael Savage's Government Zero, No Borders, No Language, No Culture. For 20 years, Savage was, uh, for millions of listeners, streaming his radio show. And uh, it was one of the top radio show programs in America, which was broadcast over 225 stations. That was at number three. So uh, making a very nice debut. 
And at number six, we have uh, The Witches. Uh, this is from uh, Pulitzer Prize winner Schiff. She's the author of Cleopatra, A Life. Uh, we say Schiff applies her descriptive prowess and flair for the dramatic to the Salem witch trials. This retelling succeeds as a work of gripping popular nonfiction. But for those already familiar with the subject, it will serve only as light reading. But nevertheless, it's debuting at number six. At number 13, we have Notorious RBG, The Life and Times of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a great title by Aaron Kamen, and it's a pretty solid biography of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. At number 14, we have a memoir by Drew Barrymore called Wildflower. For those seeking gory details of film star Barrymore's misspent youth, there's not much to be found in this low-key memoir. Instead, she brings honesty, sweetness, and humor to the tale of how she fought to earn the hard-won wisdom that steered her from being a 12-year-old former child star to becoming a beloved actor. At number 17, we have Carrie Brownstein, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl, a memoir. And at number 18, another memoir, a starred review, My Life on the Road by Gloria Steinem. If you want people to listen to you, uh, Steinem uh, underscores this powerful, personal, yet universally appealing memoir. You have to listen to them. We say Steinem strives to create positive, meaningful change. Her inviting prose is easy and enjoyable to read, even when the subject matter beers toward the painful and that's what we have on our bestseller list powered by nielsen bookscan i'm mark rotella next up dr vincent devita and elizabeth devita rayburn tell us about the end of cancer we'll be right back hi i'm adrian tomina the creator of killing and dying and you're listening to publishers weekly radio I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Dr. Vincent DeVita and Elizabeth DeVita Rayburn on the line. Their new book is The Death of Cancer. After 50 years on the front lines of medicine, a pioneering oncologist reveals why the war on cancer is winnable and how we can get there. Hello, Elizabeth and Dr. DeVita. So glad you could join us. Thanks for having us. My pleasure. So, uh, Dr. DeVita, I'm going to start. You're an oncologist and professor at Yale School of Medicine. And Elizabeth, you're a science writer and the author of the book, The Empty Room, Understanding Sibling Loss. Um, this, this seems like a, uh, a, a great pair for the book. Um, uh, I want to talk a little bit about writing later on, but first, how did this come together? Uh, well, the idea of it was first generated possibly decades ago. Um, yeah, we've been talking about it for a long time, but various projects got in the way, and then it's just sort of my father was working on it. I had just finished a project. He was looking for a writer, and I thought, oh, this will be a, a quick project for us to work on together. And seven years later, there's a book. <laughs> <laughs> after your book and Dr. DeVita, after your, your, all your research, finally, finally you guys came together for That's this. Right. So I, I want to talk a little bit about the subject. I mean, this is this is huge. The death of cancer. I mean, um, uh, tell us about the uh, the book and and how is this possible? Uh, well, I think we have what we call proof of principle that the um, the major problem we face with cancer is metastatic disease. That is, disease that spread from the primary site to other organs, which is where it does most of its damage. We have proof of principle that we now can eradicate. Uh, metastatic disease with combination chemotherapy on one hand, uh, with uh, immunotherapy on the other hand, and with targeted therapy, a third option, uh, so that we are in a situation where we can apply all these things. Uh, and they're hardly, right now, immunotherapy is really the, the hottest thing going. 
and it looks to me that there's going to, just about every cancer is going to respond to the new forms of immunotherapy some way. So I think I think if we are you know, allowed to go ahead and use all these tools, then it's it's quite possible to see many major cancers disappear uh, as a major health problem in the next 10 or 20 years. Uh, talk a little bit about immunotherapy. Yeah, many, you know, many, many years now, back going back to the 70s, uh, people were trying to stimulate the immune system to, to get rid of cancer. It was very uh, peculiar that we couldn't, you know, you, occasionally you would get a response, but most of the time patients just didn't respond. And the original thought was, well, it must be that the, the cancer cell does not have antigens on the surface that is re- recognized as foreign by the immune system. And then in, uh, about 10 years ago, uh, scientists from, from the MD Anderson uh, a Hospital and Tumor Institute in Texas uh, discovered what, what's, what are called uh, checkpoints. That the immune system has certain checkpoints that, that are blocked so that the immune system doesn't respond to self. So one had to unblock the checkpoints. And, and once it became apparent that when you did that, the, all of a sudden the immune system was just like somebody turned on the lights. They look up and they say, oh my God, these are cancer cells and chomp, they go and get them. So these are the, uh, the uh, most exciting of all the immunotherapy. But there, there's an, another uh, prospect that's really even more exciting, although it's a little bit newer, and that is you can engineer uh, the lymphocytes, the, the attacking key lymphocytes in such a way that they can attack whatever specific target you want. And so that there are studies going on now in, in some of the matrix centers in Penn and, and Memorial Sloan Kettering, the Cancer Institute, mm-hmm. where you you can um, uh, engineer, you, you just sequence the genome of a cancer and find what we call a dumb mutation, mutation that doesn't really have any kind of a function. So you can't use the mutation itself to do anything, but you can stimulate uh, and engineer the T cell to see that mutation and kill that cell. Uh, and it turns out that just about you know just about every cancer cell will have some kind of mutation on it. So it's quite possible to engineer our own immune system to attack virtually anything. So, and these are very exciting things. There's uh, that the latter one is, is quite a bit new. Mm-hmm. So it, it's uh, but it's it's working very well in in some some fairly aggressive tumors. Elizabeth, I I mean uh, you're a science writer. Uh, how- how, uh, with working with your father, information such as this, what, what, what is the process like uh, with the two of you working in, uh, on this? Often, what we initially started doing was I outlined and then he wrote and then I would edit and try and fill in questions. And we, we did a tremendous amount of our editing and, and kind of Q&A back developing this via text mm-hmm. um, because we're both kind of obsessive texters and we have it on our <laughs> wow. computers. So we, we actually rarely, this is unusual for us to be on the phone. We're actually usually texting. Um, and um, yeah, so he would explain. And we just had conversations by text as I had the text in front of me. And then I would sort of massage it and fill it in. I would send it to him. He would refine it or, you know, correct any error, add a nuance to it. So it was a very much a back and forth process. Elizabeth is being modest. No, I'm not. <laughs> well, well, because I wrote a book about three times as long. <laughs> and Elizabeth took it and cut it down to where it is now and had to make some big decisions about cutting out some very good stories, but they, they broke the flow 
of the whole story. So she cut them out. And when I first saw how much she cut out, I almost had a heart attack. We probably have a second then, book somewhere. <laughs> but but it but it worked very well. And then she she had you know what she did with me was I would say, oh you know Joe Smith uh, did this and and this is what happened. And she'd say, well what did Joe Smith look like? <laughs> you might have yeah. to sit down and think about what Joe Smith looked like. And when where did you do this? And then I'd have to describe. So she brought color into these otherwise uh, would have been dry stories. So it's, uh, it, we, I think we've worked very well together. Yeah. It's been real fun for me. Well, the, 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 what, what seemed to be about this book is it's not a, just a, a talk about cancer and the research, but but it is it has a, a big aspects of memoir uh, and 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 the history of, of your life. One thing that I, I realize is... Uh, we mentioned this in our review. While you were at the National Institute of Health, you developed a combination chemotherapy treatment that turned, if I'm not mistaken, Hodgkin's lymphoma from once fatal diagnosis into one with an 80% cure rate. Yeah, that's right. Um, that was, at that time, we, we, the use of drugs in combination was considered uh, very bad medicine. Um, but we also knew from experiments in mice that you needed to, you know, attack the cancer cell in more than one spot. So one had to be clever in terms of how you put together whatever tools you had so they acted in a different way in the case of cancer cells. So we had to put we had to put together combinations and steer them around the bone marrow. It, uh, it turned out for its time to be a very complex approach, and we got lucky. It worked. We, had, we did one pilot trial to make sure that it was survivable. And then we moved into the program called MOPP. Uh, the uh, M-O-P-P stands for the first initial of the drugs. And uh, that program was the one that cured advanced Hodgkin's disease now up to 80% of the time. And how long ago was that? We started the, um, the MOPP, the pilot trial, in late 1963. And uh, that took a year. And then we... In uh, 1965, we had put a few cases of MOP, uh, on MOP uh, protocol, and we, put, we reported the results, the first results in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Uh, we published it in 1970, and it you know it created a bit of a revolution because it was the first example of being able to cure an advanced cancer in adults with with chemotherapy. So all of a sudden, doctors who were in the field had something they could use and offer to patients to cure them. So it was quite an exciting uh, time. At the same time, we did the same thing with another tumor called diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. And we didn't report it right away because we were focusing on Hodgkin's disease. But in 1975, we reported a cure of advanced diffuse B-cell lymphoma. And then we moved on to breast cancer and, and developed the first combination adjuvant program. Uh, all CMF, <clears throat> excuse me, again, the initial standing for the drugs that we use in the program. So we, you know, we, we thought something like that would work, and did, and that's what gave us proof principle that you could cure advanced cancers with uh, chemotherapy. Uh, with the breast cancer, the CM, uh, uh, tell, tell me that combination again. CMF. And what does uh, that stand for? CMF stands for the drug Cytoxin, C. Mm-hmm. Right. M for the drug methotrexate, and F for the drug 5-fluorouracil. <clears throat> right, right. And so, Elizabeth, in, in writing this, I mean, uh, this is something that your father, this is what he's, he's 
grounded in all this science. What is it like for you to, to, to take this apart? I mean, did you ask him certain questions about that? Like, let's break these down. Let's break this down and just go step by step how this happened. I, th- I think we, we just... We just had so many conversations, and this yeah. book, really, we worked on it for so long. So there were periods of time where I was working on paper. There were periods of time where I was working with text in front of me and texting him back and forth, asking questions. There were there were times when I was just, you know, over at their house, and we were having scotch after dinner, and <laughs> new stories would crop up, and we think, that has to go in. Where does it fit? Right. So I, it's, it's, there wasn't any kind of linear process. It was just a long process that, that we kept molding this book, and we, we completely changed the outline about a year ago. So that everything had to be remolded to fit right. the, the new outline, um, and again we, we had to cut it down and make it a faster pace. And so it was, it was, there was nothing linear about <laughs> it. It was just a series of decisions and realizations, and this right. isn't clear, or this could be more powerful. Right. Right. We also mentioned our review that, uh, Dr. Vita, you had encountered resistance. I mean, uh, along the way of incorporating new ideas. Uh, Tell us about that. How does that come about? What, 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 tell us more about that. Yeah, uh, it, it, it's hard now because we can do good things so often. To think back to you know 1963, 1964, when if you said you could, you were trying to cure cancer, people thought you were crazy. Mm-hmm. Okay, I mean, so you, the, you know, I was told by one. I think we put it in the book. I was told by one of my colleagues when I was talking about the protocol. I'd be careful how you use the word cure. Because you know it's going to be bad, and, and um, so there was a, a lot of you know we, a young guy in the field getting up in front of a bunch of old dons and saying, "Look, if we put this together to cure <clears throat> Hodgkin's disease," and it was a, it was a little bit gutsy. Uh, your career uh, was on the line. Now that's where the clinical center of the NIH was unique because it, it gave you a lot more freedom than. Um, if you say moved as I did, eventually I moved out, went to Yale to finish up my training, and I, I got a rude awakening because when I started saying what we were doing in Yale at that time, and Yale is a very fine place, but at that time, uh, you know, when I first came here, they thought I was a little bit nuts. Um, and then, and then there was a lot of just hostility, and people, when when it started to work, um, people sort of felt like they missed the boat. And, and uh, resisted doing it the way we reported it. Uh, we tell all those stories in the book because I think it gives you some idea of what happens when you um, operate at the fringe um, of uh, medicine. We're going to take a quick break. Don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Vincent DeVita and Elizabeth DeVita Rayburn, uh, father and daughter, authors of The Death of Cancer. After 50 years on the front lines of medicine, a pioneering oncologist reveals why the war on cancer is winnable and how we can get there. Dr. DeVita, we were just talking about uh, uh, resistance you felt along the way and, and, and the question of curing cancer. And, and when, when in the subtitle we talk about the, winning the war on cancer, is, you know, it is winnable. Are, are we talking a cure or are we talking management? Both. Okay. Um, 
we, you know, I, look, ideally patients want to be cured. Um, they want to hear their doctor say, your cancer's gone and it's not going to come back. And we can do that in many cases. But difficult, we can do that surgically, we can do it with radiotherapy, we can do it with chemotherapy, with immunotherapy. Um, and then there are patients who we can treat and put into a sort of a chronic state. I guess the classic example is a disease called chronic myelocytic leukemia, abbreviated CML, um, which is, uh, when I was, uh, you know, working with it years ago, was uniformly fatal. It took about four years on the average, 42 months on the average, uh, before the patients died. Now people with CML uh, live a perfectly normal life. Uh, there's a, a, a mutation they have that is targeted by drugs, and the drugs, the drugs control the disease that, after a while, the patient becomes resistant to that drug, and the pharmaceutical industry has you know, developed another four or five very similar drugs that work when they become resistant. But, but for the patient with that disease, uh, they'll work, they'll be on one drug for four or five years, and then they'll switch to a second drug for four or five years, uh, and, and these people are living a perfectly normal life. So that's another example that they're not cured because you can always find evidence of the disease. But they're leading a life, say, like a diabetic uh, who takes insulin. Um, you know, they have to take a pill. They're dependent on it. Uh, so that we can do that more and more. Immunotherapy, by the way, sometimes does the same thing. Uh, immunotherapy is a little bit different than chemotherapy. You can sometimes treat a patient. The tumor will shrink, but it won't go away entirely. And the patient will sort of live in equilibrium you know, with their tumor. And this is happening with some very aggressive tumors, like lung cancer uh, is responding to immunotherapy, where it hardly ever responded very much to chemotherapy. Mm-hmm. So it's a little mixture of both. How do the pharmaceutical companies work within this this plan? Are they resistant, or uh, is this something they're working with to cure? Or the story the story is interesting, and we I don't think we actually put it in the book, mm. but the person who developed the first drug. Uh, for CML. His name is Brian Drucker, who is the director of the Cancer Center at the University of Oregon. Um, when he first <clears throat> proposed this, there was he was at Harvard at the time, and there wasn't a lot of enthusiasm. It seemed like you know applied research and not really good basic research. And the drug companies sort of looked at it and said, oh, the drug company he was working with so looked at it and said, there's not such a big market for this. I'm not sure we really want to invest a lot of money, but Brian was a real pest, and he pushed everybody, pushed everybody, and they developed the drug, and it turned out that it's very exciting. It opened up the whole field of targeted therapy, and it turns out that insurance, the um, uh, pharmaceutical companies make money. Uh, you know, a patient who died in four years is now living 15, 20 years. That's about as far out as we are from the discovery of the uh, drugs, mm-hmm. um, and they're taking drugs all the time. It's, it's actually it's a very substantial market. And the drugs, by the way, are reasonably priced. They're not uh, outlandish like some of the drugs you're hearing about. So it worked out for everybody. So they're, once once it worked, then it was very easy to get them to develop the drugs that worked against the, the cell once it became resistant to the first drug. So right now there are five drugs for CML, that uh, work, uh, and you can use them in sequence. And there are studies going on to use them in combination to see whether we can just eradicate the disease. And there's some hopeful hints in that area as well. When we talk about uh, you're curing or eradicating cancer, are we talking about all cancers or are some cancers closer than others? 
Well, some cancers, look, uh, we, right at the moment, the relative survival rate in this country is 68%. Okay, that means that 68% of cancers live, uh, patients with cancer live uh, on the average about the same as in age and sex match control. So some of those patients will relapse. But five-year survival rate is a pretty good indication of what you're doing. So a lot of cancers are curable. Uh, they, I mean, through localized cancers are very easily curable by surgery. Um, and, and we now can cure increasing numbers of patients who haven't metastasized mm-hmm. with the ones that I've already mentioned. So it's not, it's not a, a rare thing. It's a common thing. And, and uh, I think, in fact, you know, we, we stack the deck against ourselves. Uh, there are about a half a million cases of skin cancer, the garden variety skin cancer, and they are about 98% curable. We don't count them in statistics, okay, because they're so easily curable. Mm. We throw them out. So, we, uh, you know, if we put them in, the, the data would look much better. Wow. But, uh, you know, one of the tumors that has been a real uh, very serious tumor for many, many years, another skin cancer called melanoma, right. which we do, is now falling to immunotherapy. It's very uh, delighting and delightful to see this happening. Dr. DeVita, you yourself were treated for prostate cancer, and at one point you write, I survived because my doctors were courageous in using the tools we already possessed, and that will allow me to take advantage of new ones. Um, and at this point, you, 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 know, you, you yourself are, are being treated for, for something that you've been spending a lot of time researching. What was it like to be on the other side of that as the patient? Scary. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, I gotta, you know, as much as you deal with cancer when somebody else has it, uh, when you get it, you're just like any other patient. You know, you're, you're frightened about it, uh, that you're going to die from it. And um, and I, where I normally go out and am very aggressive with my patients, uh, go search the literature for things I can do for them that are new and different, uh, I didn't want to look at the literature for myself because I was afraid of what I would find. So, I, so what I say in the book is uh, I contacted my colleague, Steve Rosenberg, the chief of surgery at the Cancer Institute, and he, he acted as a, a, a sort of a navigator for me and, and searched everything and all the opportunities, and, and we worked our way through a very complicated case and, and knock wood. Um, I'm alive and free of disease at the moment, so it's been a very interesting trip. Wonderful. And how, how long ago was this? Uh, six years ago. So, Elizabeth, as as you're writing with your father, I mean, I, I imagine this is one of the points where you have to say, you know, s- slow down, let's talk about this, and maybe talk a little bit more. What was it like writing about this, something that you obviously remember six years ago, him going through? Well, I, that was, there were several points where writing came to a bit of a halt when we were involved in writing this book, and that was one of them, where it just, mm-hmm. it just we just had to stop. And I, I knew at the time that this was material that could be in the book and should be in the book. In fact, it paralleled the case that we began the book with in almost eerie fashion. So, but I wasn't trying to write it at that point because at that point it was just a crisis for our family to to get through. So what I did was basically save all of our email correspondence because as I said, my dad and I talk by, by email and by text more than we talk by phone. It just ends up being our mode of communication. So I saved everything he sent me and everything he said, and I tried to take some notes, and my, my dad was like, look, I, I don't think I can do the first draft on this one if you think it has to be in there. 
you know, that's fine, but, but you have to do the first draft on it. So I kind of crafted it mm -hmm. from my memory and from the emails that he sent me, and then he gave me permission to talk to his doctors. And so mm -hmm. I was able to put that information in there, and then I was able to, you know, send him a draft that then he could work with. And, and by that time, some time had elapsed so that it wasn't as terrifying to read his own story on the page, I think, and he, he was able to work on it, so... Is that the case, Dr. DeVita, uh, to, to, to be able, oftentimes, especially in writing personal things in, in memoir form, uh, it's easier to distance, when you have distance on it, how was that process for you reading this and, and, and you know, or like working on this section? Yeah, well, Elizabeth said, I mean, first of all, she's the one who convinced me it should be in the book. Yeah. And and, um, and then I, as I said, I, I, I didn't really want to take a shot at the first draft of it, so she did it. Um, you know, getting information from the doctors, and, um, it, it was you know it's a little bit trying to read through it, but but not not as bad as, as it might have been. So, Elizabeth, working on this book, were there things that you found out about your father, learned about your father you didn't know, and what, what were some of the things? What was that like? I don't think there were any specific things that, or stories that I didn't know about. It's just that, you know, it's unique to, to hear your, your parents' story this in-depth as an adult. You know, mm -hmm. I had lived through these times with him, but as a child and from a child's perspective. So to actually be able to walk through all those years and hear what was going on from his perspective all around me, um, was an amazing gift um, to to really understand him and his career, and um, it was it was kind of a fantastic process. It wasn't something I anticipated going in. I just thought it would be you know a good project for us to work on together, but it it, it ended up being tremendous. So. And Dr. Devita, from your point of view, well, I should say, I should say that Elizabeth found out that I was really a nice guy. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't as portrayed as this big older that was going to bite her head off. <laughs> People keep but asking. I, but I, I mean, I knew Elizabeth was a good writer, but I really appreciated her writing skills the more I worked with her. Uh, and uh, she was really the only thing I, the only thing I couldn't do. I worked. Somebody, by the way, I'll back up a little bit and say, someone, a good friend of mine, said, "Don't work with your daughter. It just won't work." I, he said, "I used to do things with my daughter, and it just doesn't work." That turned out it worked. But the only thing I couldn't do was to call her up at 10 o'clock at night and say, look, I need this by 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. And I knew what she would say. She would say, come on down and take care of your grandson, and I'll do it. So uh, other than that, it was, it was, it was fine. But I, I really, what I learned was that she's a terrific writer. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so... Um... Just in final, how how can we get there? This is the uh, the last part of your subtitle. How can we get to this winnable situation? You know, I think people keep saying, let's get more money for research, and we should get more money for research. But you need more than money. You need the flexibility to use it uh, intelligently. And the programs that we have now are sort of hidebound with regulations and, and all kinds of crazy things that keep you from doing what you should do. In fact, there's one study, I think we cited in the book, that looked at how long it took to get a protocol. You know, a, a protocol is a, a new idea that you're putting on paper that you want to test. Uh, in some cases, it takes 800 days 
to get a, a protocol approved through the system to go through a cancer center, go through the National Cancer Institute, mm-hmm. go through the FDA. And then if you want to change it, which, you know, which again, the society of jabbering idiots, those, the early meeting that I talk about, we could change things immediately. But if you want to change it now, you've got to go back to the end of the line and start all over again. So we're, we're crippled by regulations that aren't necessary. Uh, and um, I suggest a few ways that we can you know, change things a little bit more rapidly. But I don't think it's just a good idea to pour money into the system. You need to pour money into the system and add that flexibility that we had in the early years of the war on cancer. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much. We've been talking with Dr. Vincent DeVita and Elizabeth DeVita Rayburn. You can find their book, The Death of Cancer, in stores right now. Elizabeth and Dr. DeVita, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Very well, Mark. I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW publisher Kevin Breyerman will tell us about a new publishing venture in Cuba, so stay tuned. Hello, everyone. I'm Ron Stodgill, the author of Where Everybody Looks Like Me, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today PW's publisher, Kevin Breyerman, is here to tell us all about an exciting venture taking U.S. publishers to Cuba. Hi, Kevin. Hi, how are you, Mark and Rose? Doing very well, thank you. So tell us a little bit about this. It's, uh, it's a pretty novel sort of thing. Well, ever since the uh, United States and Cuba decided to normalize relations uh, between both countries, um, PubMatch, John Malinowski, and Publishers Weekly, myself, um, thought of a great idea is how do we bridge communication between Cuban authors, publishers, um, the Havana Book Fair, and publishers in the United States who cannot officially go down to Cuba until all this is on some type of special people-to-people's tour. So we brainstormed a couple of months ago and saying, um, why not bring publishers to Cuba? So we were hooked up with a travel agency that has the um, four-way to get into Cuba, plan a trip, which has to be more business but also tourist opportunities. So we brainstormed about bringing publishers to Cuba. We sat around the table and said, okay, let's go try it. So we actually went around talking to publishers and said, would you like to go to Cuba? I think they're fascinated because Cuba's Americans can't really get into Cuba unless they go on some special tours and also be able to now see what kind of commerce or business they can get out of, do with, with Cuban authors, distributors, with the Havana Book Fair. So we got a pretty good positive response. Nobody put money down yet. But we figured we might as well go and explore it. So John and I took a trip down to Cuba um, in December and uh, no July. Um, pretty interesting place to go. It's going back in time to the 1950s. It really old, is, huh? With the old tin cars, you know, right. that put together with Ford parts and Jeep parts and putting around. Um, the the culture is unbelievable in terms of the the architect that's beautiful but it's being run down because Cashel decided you know not to maintain the buildings it's about leveling the playing field interesting to go out into the suburbs and hang out with the old salsa dancers that are 80 and 90 years old they've been in the nightclubs um, the food is awesome a lot of the privately owned homes have been turned into um, restaurants um, the hotels are nice hotels decent hotels what I found very interesting which is the kind of escape um, I was not able to use my cell phone. Oh, so right. I, That's right. Uh, we weren't allowed to use American 
dollars. Mm-hmm. So we had to go to a person that got us uh, cukes, they call it. Um, we couldn't use the internet, very spotty. You would pay $8 an, an hour and you would get on the internet and then you automatically got canceled for some reason. But it was nice to get away from the day-to-day activities and meet the people. The people are very friendly, gracious, love to know about what's going on in America, very curious. So I think some are very excited about Americans coming, but also they're very confused in a way because what are they going to do to Cuba? Right. You know, I was so, so this event is going to happen in mid February. Uh, We're talking about this is going to be in conjunction with the Havana book fair. Tell us who is, uh, who, who you think might be going, uh, and, and where will the event be held and who is it going to be open to the public? Now, it's basically a day-and-a-half conference. Okay. We invite um, high-level executives from publishing houses, whether mm-hmm. it's Ingram, Perseus, um, Albert Whitman, um, Smashwords. We want the people who are interested in, in finding out how they can do business. So we had 50 slots. We have basically 45 slots sold out. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a waiting list, uh, which will open up eventually. So basically, it'll be a day and a half conference. They will invite their people from Cuba, and they're expecting maybe 100, 200 people to come from authors, agents, publishing houses. They're very interested in learning about translation, distribution, how to books sell books into the States, how Americans can sell books in Cuba. So it'll be an exchange of ideas and conversations between their leaders in publishing and our leaders in publishing. And then... Um, towards the end of it, they'll have the access to Havana Book Fair, where they can walk around. I understand there's over a million people coming to the Havana Book Fair. Wow. It's, really? it's more of a consumer show, but they do have a tray element. So it's kind of be an awesome experience to see Cuba. They'll work with people on the other side on publishing, visit Havana Book Fair, see if there's business opportunities to be had. And I know there are some publishers already down there scoping out the areas. Mm. For instance, Baylor University is already shipping 15,000 books into Cuba. Hmm. They're, more, they're more of a religious house. I know from HarperCollins, um, Latin American, um, Larry Downs has been down there scoping out Spanish opportunities. Mm-hmm. So it's really an exchange of ideas and communications. And we just found out through our connections, um, they might be coming to BEA Cuba. Hmm. Really? Which is pretty exciting. So we're just trying to open up communications. And we're the first American publishers, PW and PubMatch, to be down there organizing this, this group. You know, our biggest challenge is getting hotel rooms. Right. Um, because yeah. it's a big tourist designation for Europeans. You know, you know, it's kind of controlled by the government in terms of rooms and how you get the rooms and how you pay for the rooms. So that's our biggest challenge is securing rooms. We hope in the future to make it uh, will be an annual trip, but also now they're asking for our guidance to come down quarterly. Mm-hmm. They're very big on distribution opportunities. So... I think it's just it's more communication. See if there's any business to be doing in the future. Right. Right. So you, know, I, I was surprised the number of people attending this. You know, a million people. I mean, I know that Cuba has the highest literacy, you know, among the highest literacy rates in all of Latin America, um, and it seems like there are readers there and people wanting. Well, the, the, the Castro's biggest thing is when he leveled the playing field is about right. literacy. I think right. it's like 99.8 is right. literacy. Now the government is being involved in literacy programs where kids are being tested for English. Eventually probably become a primary la- the language, English versus Spanish. Really? Huh. Um, they're very into literacy, culture, arts. They have the laws 
jazz festival down there in Cuba in November. Um, it's very cultural related, and they do a yeah. lot of interesting stuff. But you know, if you think about you know, some of the authors that come from that, Ernest Hemingway houses down there, we've, which we visited. They're very big on arts and culture, and um, I think it will open up American eyes to a lot mm -hmm. of different things. I, I was going to ask about language, um, whether all these publishers going down are looking for translation opportunities or whether there's a big English reading population um, and books could just be directly imported. Um, they're looking for translation opportunities. Um, there's not a lot of English books that I've seen down there. There's not many bookstores down there, most in Spanish. Most of their books are being bought at flea markets or small mm -hmm. little shops that are back in the corner. Mm -hmm. um, we met with some university kids there. It's um, basically opening up new ideas for them, yeah. and they're really, they're really striving to see how they can get their authors into into the States and exposure for books because their publishing programs aren't big in terms of the number of copies they print you know it is a million dollar a million people running in the Havana Book Fair but it kind of circulates around to all different regions mm -hmm. so it's more of a kind of a festival atmosphere right. that's what we're learning or hearing we haven't really physically saw what the Havana Book Fair is so we might have a different opinion when we go there yeah. it might be something totally different than we're expecting I, I've got a question what did you gather for, after having traveled there talking to uh, uh, the publishers there what, what's your observations about the uh, Cuban publishers there um they just want to get books out into the market. They're, they're thirsty f yeah. and to communicate with the United States publishers. Yeah. Sees a huge opportunity for commerce on the right. publishing side. I think they're curious themselves because I don't think they n know a lot yeah. of what the American can be. Right. I know a lot of a lot of American people are coming into Cuba because they can get into Cuba and doing commerce. But I think it's a whole new experience for everybody. It's really more of an exploratory. And we might find there's no business. Well, there may be tons of business. But it's going to be a country that's going to develop over time. Why not Publishers Weekly and PubMatch being first there and helping publishers connect? Right. Right. That sounds like such an exciting idea. So do you have any plans for, for February and specific beyond just you know take all these folks down yeah, there and see what happens? We're planning right now the track programming. Mm -hmm. We'll have uh, panels about distribution, panels about translation, panels about authors and what they do and how they do so it's really a day and a half program which we're now involved in planning and mm -hmm. we have some pretty interesting guests that are coming uh, people espanol the publisher and the editor-in-chief will come and be on a panel because one of them is cuban born so he'll give his perspectives being an author in the states and also being a cuban born and being living in cuba mm -hmm. so the panel is really different tracks and we're formulating a very interest in learning about self-publishing mm-hmm because you know, print on demand is not big down there, but there's opportunities to print small amount of books. So there'll be we're just formulating the panels now because we're taking the expertise that with us. Like Ingram's going to be there about distribution. Right. Hopefully, Perseus will be there with distribution. Um, people Espanol is more interested in seeing what's going on and maybe covering it in Time magazine. Mm -hmm. So you know, it's a lot of high thinking, but as we put it together. It'll be more and more exciting. Because sure. remember, we put this together in like five or six months. So it's it's really a work in progress. But I think the you know the people that we're inviting who can contribute to the program, it's going to be awesome. Yeah. And I think they're really interested in dealing with Americans' publishers. Right. 
And um, I'm guessing this is not a big digital market, given what you said about <laughs> no, internet No, it's not speed. digital, but everybody has a cell phone uh-huh. uh, down there. Just uh, you know, can't call the states. But they are very interested in digital. I think digital oh, really? is in the for- going to be in the forefront. Mm-hmm. You know, they're very savvy in in medical. Mm-hmm. Research. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of interesting drugs that are coming out of Cuba that we don't use in the state to cure certain illnesses. Um, education is very big. I think technology will, will eventually come when they have the infrastructure in there. Right. You know, just like when I go to India or, you know, you think about a very poor country, yeah. but everybody, even the people who live on the streets, all have cell phones. Mm-hmm. That's how the government connects with them. Really? So you think about you know yeah. India and then you look at Cuba, which do have phones. They do have cell phones. They have great restaurants. They have great culture, great music, high education, high education. Yeah. So I think they just in the terms of want to bust out eventually. Yeah. Well, wow, it's so interesting. So um, assuming everything goes well in February, where do you see things going from here for your partnership? We would like. Well, now that they're if they're interested in coming to BEA, I'm looking to see how PW can expand into Cuba, mm-hmm. whether it's a special edition about publishing to hook up with the Havana book field that we do other things. Um, I think, you know, PW's launched into the Hispanic market with our columns and our supplements. So we've, because the United States population is probably around 18% Hispanic. So opportunities, we're thinking this will definitely be an annual trip if everybody loves what we do, they they want us to do it quarterly. Bring down certain groups of people, like bring down distribution people, mm-hmm. bring down digital people. They want to be educated and enriched to what can be offered to them. So they they would like to see us do it more often than just once a year. Wow. Well, it sounds like you've really got some great stuff in the works here. Uh, is there anything that you're personally looking forward to in February, other than going I'm to some of those great <laughs> restaurants? Going back and smoke my cigar and have a little rum. <laughs> but no, I just I find the people very fascinating. I find it kind of one like my go-to designation. The beaches are beautiful. Yeah. Uh, once it opens up to Americans, I hope um, they understand the history and the culture of it. Um, but I find people very, very friendly, hospitable. Yeah. I, I think the arts is nice. I've been to some museums there. We work with uh, a Cuban um, person who's designing posters for us for the, for the thing. He's a leading artist in Cuba. Um, seeing how they do things back in the 50s, how to print yeah. um, printing machines, you know, that are basically based limestones. You know, they carve out stuff. I, I just find it overling interesting to go back in time and see how this company this this country is going to develop into something special yeah and to be in the forefront and be kind of one of the first people to be down there you know canadians go down there but but you know i talked to my friends about it and they're just fascinated that you're going to cuba and i've been already twice in six six months i'll be going down in february it's just it's like going back in time yeah and seeing things back in time seeing you know not using internet you know right cars that are just could break down any second you got to push it up the hill to start it again you know mm-hmm. going out and see, still seeing the lines for eggs and bread out in the countryside seeing how people um live see the how the uh, about the underground market that's right. going on the black market between currency and things that you want there is no really formal shopping centers you know you see kids with old adidas t-shirts on yep. and the old sneakers and but in the forefront, they, they seem very, very happy Yeah. what they do. And also see the buildings that Castro built, you know, and, and landmark places that have been around. And so I just think it's, it's probably one of my favorite places because everybody can go to Italy. Everybody right. can go to France. 
but how many Americans really have gotten the opportunity to go to Cuba unless it's a People People tour? Sure. Right. Right. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing your report once you come back in sure. February. And uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Well, my pleasure. Um, thank you, Kevin. Forward to it. All right. We'll have you back in a few months to tell us how it went. Thank you. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Jenny Lawson, the author of Seriously Happy, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another exciting author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 